The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Turn your copy of scripture open to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. 176 verses here, so hopefully you didn't put a a meat in the crock. We're going to be here for a while. Um, What was that, an amen? Did I hear an amen down there? Got one, got one out of you guys. So, no, what we're going to do is come at Psalm 119 um, in a thematic way this morning. Um, I'm going to say some more um, about this here just to give you guys the flow and the direction of where we're going before we read um, from the Word of God. Um. We're starting a new sermon series, the new sermon series I'm going to give a little bit of an explanation of why I just felt led by God to go in the direction that we're going to go for the next five weeks. Um, I would really covet your prayer as we seek to be wise um, as serpents, um, innocent as doves, concerning the culture that we live in as Christians, walking in obedience to our God who is good and wise in all things. And so just um, I want to honor Christ above all things. And that is my aim, to set him at the center. And so the only way I know how to do that is to simply by being a servant who says, Speak, Lord, so that I may speak on your behalf as I seek to get us wet with the water of God's word. And so in that vein, what I want to do is read two sections out of Psalm 119 just to give us a kind of flavor of um, Bible delight that we find in this psalmist. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll skip down and we'll read verses 97 through 104. I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's word as we do this. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that what you hold in your hands is more than ink on paper. It is a double-edged sword that has the power to lay us open and conform us into the image of Christ. And listen how the psalmist talks about this double-edged weapon from these verses. Verse 1, Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Skim down to verse 97. He continues, listen to the emphatic delight that he has. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. 
I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, as you've hopefully seen on Slack, I've been um, doing my best just to try to keep you in the loop of where we're going. So today we're starting a new five-part sermon series, and that sermon series is going to be called Jesus and Culture. Our sermon title this morning is just simply titled Bible Delight, and the main idea that I just want you to grip onto this morning, if you get nothing else, walk away with this that the key to knowing God and the key to making him known is delight in God's word. That's really what's going to bubble to the surface as we do a thematic look, a thematic approach to Psalm 119. The key to knowing God and making him known is delight in God's word. I'm going to unpack what I mean by that as we begin to look at just Uh, broadly this idea of the new sermon series we're going to go into, um, explain why I'm beginning the sermon series the way I am with a focus on the doctrine of scripture, and then we'll get down into the nitty-gritty of our approach to Psalm 119, okay? So first, before we're going to do this, we're going to pray. We're going to ask that the Holy Spirit would empower the preaching of his word. We need him to open our eyes to see Christ We need him to open our minds to understand scriptures. That's what Jesus explained to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus as he was unpacking how God's word all centers and rotates around him. So let's pray that for one another and then we'll get into our sermon this morning. Father, my aim is to maximize your glory this morning through the preaching of your word Through the word of God, I want us to see the word of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. My mind drifts to the words uh, that Eli eventually told Samuel as Samuel was hearing God speak to him. Eventually, Eli said, hey, you, you need to do is go back and respond to the living God this way by saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And my aim is that as you speak, Lord, through your word today, we would with happy and joyful hearts say, your servant is listening. Holy Spirit, come and drench this time. Immerse. We need you again to open our eyes to see Jesus, to open our eyes to see how it's all about him, to open our eyes to see how the scriptures center on him, open our minds to understand what it looks like to walk with Bible delight in these days so that Jesus would receive the glory and the honor he is worthy to receive as the king who's conquered death. It's in the name of the risen Christ, I pray. Amen. So I was trying to think of how we can just sort of ease into uh, this new sermon series. I think the graphic, why don't you pop that graphic up there, uh, Wes, click over to the next slide, brother. Jesus, Jesus and, and culture. 
Um, and I'm like, well, obviously, the easiest way to do this is by having a three-part introduction to the sermon. And so that's what I have for you. I have a pre-pre-intro, a pre-intro, and an intro to the sermon um, this morning, just so that we can lay the groundwork of why we're going where we're going. So the pre-pre-intro is this, sermon series, Jesus and Culture. If you remember four years ago, if you were around four years ago during the last general election, there's the brother, actually the brother we just prayed for from Owensboro, Kentucky, really encouraged me as I was only a couple years into my uh, pastoral ministry at that time, of don't neglect those things that you know your people are talking about. Specifically, just as the culture is working and going on around us, Christians are meant to be thinkers. We're meant to think about the culture we find ourselves in and to think about how we can ultimately submit to Christ as we seek to make him known to others. And people around you are thinking about questions, especially hot topic issues that um, any political season might, might bring bring to pass. If you want to see how we approached it four years ago in 2016, you can go and find the sermon series online called Jesus and Politics. We're in a general election now this year, and just as I was seeking the assistance of the elders of where to go once we wrapped up the book of Ephesians, it just seemed like there was wisdom in seeking to address this idea again. The reason why I went from Jesus and politics to Jesus and culture is because our culture is raging around us right now. There's brokenness everywhere, and one of the forefront issues in front of us with the issues that have been swirling around uh, justice, swirling around this idea idea of what happened to Mr. George Floyd and other men and women created in the image of God, it just seemed like as I was seeking the Lord that it would be good and right for us to try to establish a biblical view of what justice is. Surely I'm not the only one thinking about these things. Now, what we're going to do after Jesus and culture is to go back into God's word. As you know, my aim as the shepherd of this flock is to try to feed us a steady diet of Old and New Testament. And so since we just wrapped up the New Testament, we're going to go into the Old and we're going to go study the book of Amos. And Amos is a prophet that's going to help us further tease these things out. What I just want you to know is this, is that my aim as your pastor is to be a man who preaches the gospel. That's my job. I want, it to, want us to be wet with the water of God's word. I want to point us to Christ. I want to just say, thus says the Lord. I mean, the reason why we're saying what we're saying is because this is what God says in his word. But the moment some of you have just heard me talking about this idea of justice... There's a whole range of feelings, a whole range of emotions, a whole range of thoughts that are just raging, going back and forth, to and fro in our minds. Some of you have just heard me say the word justice, and you're feeling awesome, man. It's about time our church is going to start talking about things like this. Some of you are on the opposite end of the spectrum where you are very nervous right now because you're like, did Pastor John just go woke on us? Because he mentioned the word justice. And my argument is we're going to be talking about justice and I'm putting the adjective biblical in front of that word is because that's what we need to be. We're going to address some of these things on how biblical justice helps us weigh into the matters of phrases that you guys, I know that you're hearing. The thing is, the way we should feel about justice is to go, what does the Bible have to say about justice? Because we want to be men and women who are consumed with delight in God's word and ultimately delight in the God of the word. 
And what the Bible tells us as the plumb line, if you're ranging to and fro between these two spectrums, is it's good and right for us to think about this because we want to love what God loves. And the Bible says God loves justice and righteousness. So we're going to think about that. Now, some of you are like nervous because this is an overly, in our culture, this idea is overly politicized. And some of you are stoked by that. Like you embrace the politicization of this topic and you are fired up about that. Some of you are nervous or cynical because this topic is overly politicized and it makes you very frustrated because various political parties swing things in certain ways. But my argument's going to be the reason why, again, we want a biblical plumb line is because this idea of justice is biblical. Therefore, if it is biblical, what you need to know that it won't align with either of the two parties. Okay? Now, some of you are, and you think about this with the church, you're disappointed because the church doesn't talk enough about this idea of justice. And some of you are disappointed because your church is talking about this idea. Okay, but God's aim biblically, I would argue, is for the church to imitate him. And that includes the understanding and the practice of justice. And the reason why, and this is sort of flowing now a little bit from the pre-pre-intro into the pre-intro of why am I choosing to talk about a five-part series I'm calling Jesus and Culture, knowing that we're going to get to a cultural topic that is just being talked about by Men and women who are Christians and not Christians, this idea of justice. Why am I starting the first two sermons off by talking about a doctrine of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, a delight for the Word of God? And it's because of this. I've seen it on Facebook feeds. I've seen it in news feeds. I've seen it and heard it in conversations. And I'm going to address these things in the weeks to come. The reason why I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm, I'm saying what I'm going to say over the next couple of weeks is because I see two, two opposite end spectrums. On one end of the spectrum, as it relates to the Bible, I see Christians, self-avowed Christians, men and women, I believe, who are born again, operating in a way that does not line up biblically because they are not convinced the Bible has answers to address the current cultural climate that we're in. Now, they wouldn't say that with their mouth. But the actions and the ideas that they're adopting are anti-gospel, anti-Christ, anti-Bible because there's just sort of this innate thing working back within them that sort of says, I'm not quite sure the Bible has the answers for me to be able to understand things about justice, things about race maybe even, things about social justice, that's a phrase you hear, things like critical race. Things like intersectionality, the concepts that are being promoted by certain organizations that are not biblical, I think Christians are biting into because there's just sort of this belief in the back of their mind, I'm not quite sure the Bible is sufficient to be able to handle these things. We need to handle these things. Who's giving me answers? These people are giving me answers, so let's believe what they believe. That's one side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum might be this. You are convinced that the Bible does say things about this, but you're not overly convinced the Bible addresses, uh, uh, addresses the topic or you're not overly convinced that the Bible calls us to care about the topic. Sure, the Bible has some things to say about justice, but is that really our job to care about this? And so my hope is to try to bring some balance to this in this five-part series. 
There's a good buddy of mine on Facebook said this, there are gospel issues as one category and there are issues impacted because we believe the gospel. I think the Bible would just put it in this way. We're not only to be hearers of the word, we're to be doers of the word as well. We're not only to be proclaimers of the gospel. We're not only to come and say, you must be saved if you want to know eternal life. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. We must seek Christ. We must know Christ. We must submit to Christ. We must repent and believe in Christ. Our church will never stop proclaiming that, Lord willing, as long as I'm in the pulpit. We have to center on the good news that Jesus Christ is the Savior who died and resurrected from the grave so that sinners might be saved. Your friends need to know that. But you know as well as I know that James says that there are ways to then go out and do as a result of what you believe. And my hope is to bring balance in that way. So there you go. That's the pre-pre-intro, okay? So pre-intro. Why that sermon series on Scripture why are we starting here and the next week going to the sufficiency? It's because one major desire of me as your pastor is that we would be people who abide in the word. We talked about this when we preached through the upper room discourse at the end of last year, specifically in John 15. And for us to understand the times, for us to walk wisely in our world, God's people need God's word to grow. In our cultural climate, there are subtle and not-so-subtle worldviews that are vying for our consumption. They want us to consume them. On a daily basis, we are inundated with worldly philosophies rooted in human tradition, whether proclaimed on our news feeds or propounded on social media. The unfortunate effect of this deluge is that many Christians, as I said a couple of minutes ago, are being shaped by the culture instead of being shaped by the Word of God. You see, the scripture calls recipients of grace to be renewed in their minds, and that renewal is to come, as Paul says in Colossians 3.16, as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That is the way our minds are to be renewed. That's the way we grow in being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But far too often, we let other things dwell in us richly, and these things are renewing our minds away from God, away from his good design for our lives, away from the way he wants us to live, walk, and speak in this world. I long for us to be people of the word because in the word we find, Peter says, all that we need for life and for godliness. One of my great concerns now for us, brothers and sisters, is that far too many of us are being discipled by Fox News, CNN, Facebook, Twitter, and beyond. And stats are just sort of proving these sorts of things. Too many of us are having our minds renewed by these things as we take our Bibles, close them, and shove them away for all sorts of reasons. And my aim today is to say, brothers and sisters, we are called to be Bible delighters because we want to delight ultimately in the God of the Bible. And we want our minds to be renewed by these things because as we'll see next week, our Bibles are sufficient to help us think wisely, walk wisely, and proclaim Christ supremely in this world. And we want to eat the word, ingest the word, think the word, pray the word, counsel the word, sing the word, share the word, proclaim the word, pray the word. We want to be Bible eaters in that way. 
And my hope today is just to fan into flame insofar as it's up to me and the power of Christ within me to that endeavor. That's the pre-intro. Now the intro. All right, here we go. Psalm 119. As you know, um, if you've been around uh, church for any amount of time, maybe you don't know this, Psalm 119, um, it's the longest, longest of the Psalms, it's the longest chapter. Um, but what you need to know is that Psalm 119 is essentially a love poem. It's a love poem. It's a love poem that's all about the psalmist's great delight in God's law. The psalmist loves God's law. We heard him say that earlier in verse 97 when we read from our scripture reading earlier. But notice that the psalmist loves God's law not because it's a set of restrictive rules. He doesn't say, God, I love your law because it just binds me up and it brings no freedom whatsoever and it's so restrictive and legalistic and overbearing and rude. He doesn't say that. He says, no, I love your law because your law is your way for your people to be happy, blessed. It's that double blessing in verse 1 and verse 2. He says, if you want to know the happy blessing of the living God on your life, it is to embrace wholeheartedly God's goodness for you in the law, in the word. Yet the beauty of this psalm is not only in its declaration of love for the word of God, but more importantly, and I'm going to say this multiple times, the beauty of this psalm is in the psalmist's declaration of love for the God of the word. He doesn't just love the Bible for the Bible's sake. He loves the Bible because of the God of the Bible that the Bible reveals. And he's in love with God because God has loved him. He knows the grace that he has received from the living God. In other words, if you want to encapsulate Psalm 119, all 176 verses, what you can say is that Psalm 119 is a poem about Bible delight. And not just delight in the Bible as an end in itself. The psalmist knows God intimately. He wants others to know God intimately. And what he knows is that the key to knowing God and making him known is delight in God's word. Now, what you need to know is that throughout Psalm 119, the psalmist repeatedly uses different words to talk about the Word of God. He uses eight different words that are sort of synonymous. They all have their own little niches and nuances there. He talks about God's Word as the law, as testimonies, as precepts and statutes and commands and rules and word and promises and so what he does is he dips into this bag of eight words for the word of God. He pulls them out and then he unleashes a kaleidoscope explosion of 176 verses exulting in the glories of God's word. And like a lover who sings to declare their affections for the one they love, the psalmist is just doing the same here in Psalm 119. Yahweh the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This God is the source of his Bible delight. Ultimately, God's word is a means of grace that enables him to know God and make him known. And so what he did is he put pen to paper, carried along by the Holy Spirit, and then he lays out 176 verses as an encouragement for those who would come and read it to come and exult in the God that he loves and the word of God that reveals the God that he loves. 
I think it's a good thing for us to remember that one of the great functions of the Psalms is their role in shaping how real people respond to real struggles in the real world. In a world that has been touched and tainted by sin in every single part, that's what the doctrine of total depravity teaches us. It's not that we're all as depraved as we could be. It's that everything is not as it ought to be. Sin has touched and ruined and tainted and destroyed everything. And every one of us know the experience of failing to believe as we ought to believe, not feeling as we ought to feel, and not doing as we ought to do because of sin. But in step the Psalms, and this is why the Psalms are so good for the soul, is because the Psalms come to us and by God's grace, the Holy Spirit carried along all of these psalmists to where they really, in essence, pull back the curtain of their lives, revealing the paths that lead us to believe as we ought to believe, to feel as we ought to feel, and to do as we ought to do. And in regard to this idea, Psalm 119 is no different because the psalmist is going to take that little three, three-parter, believe, feel, do, and he's just going to say, guys, here's what you need to believe concerning the word of God. Here's what you need to feel concerning the word of God. And here's what you need to do concerning the word of God. And with the remainder of the time this morning, this is what I want to do. My prayer and my hope is to stoke the flames of Bible delight in our hearts so that we can start big, set a foundation for us to come next week and say, hey, remember that Bible that we're called to delight in, what we're called to believe about it, what we're called to feel about it, what we're called to do about it? Hey, this Bible is sufficient for us to think about our culture. But before we got to sufficiency, I wanted us just to step back in glory and the goodness of the Word of God and the God of the Word. So question, point one. What should I believe about the word of God? What should I believe about the word of God? First, the psalmist says we are to believe that God's word says what is true. God's word says what is true. In a world of deep fakes and Photoshop, it can be hard to discern what is true and thus what can be trusted. But not with God's word. The psalmist sings in verse 151, all your commandments are true. Not just the commandments we agree with, not just the words we find palatable, not just the thoughts and the ideas that we think the culture will want to embrace, but all your commandments are true. He says in verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. Genesis to Revelation, everything in between, wisdom literature, history, judges, Leviticus, yes, even Leviticus, numbers, the Proverbs, the minor prophets, the gospels, the acts, the letters, Revelation, all of it, the sum of it. He says, these things are truth. Therefore, he says, I Trust in your word. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever wanted to know what is true about the origin of humanity, what's true about the meaning and purpose of life, what's true about good, what's true about evil, what's true about death, true about God, true about you, true about heaven, true about hell, true about the gospel, true about sin, true about Christ, then I propose to you go to that which is the sum of all truth. Your word. Come to God's word. Because God's word 
says what is true. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in the upper room discourse when he was praying to the Father in John 17, 17? Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth for, what's he say? Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Jesus knows this. Second thing we are to believe, God's word demands what is right, what is true and what is right. One defining attribute of God is that he is good. He is good. He is not evil. He is not malevolent. He is benevolent. He is good. And out of his goodness, he demands what is right. The psalmist says in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. All God's commandments are sure, he says in verse 86. All his precepts are right, verse 128. God never requires what is impure, never requires what is unloving, never requires what is unwise. He always declares what is just. He always declares what is right. He does not give orders so that we might be restricted and miserable. No, he issues his right decrees so that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. Third, God's word provides what is good. True, right, and good. So what good things does, does God's word give us? What does the psalmist say? Man, I would encourage you to go back this afternoon and comb through these verses. I've just pinpointed a few of them. According to the psalmist, God's word is the way to true happiness, verses 1 and 2. It's the way to walk in purity. That's a good thing, verse 9. Provides the way of good counsel. That's a good thing, verse 24. We find the good gift of lasting hope and great peace in God's word. And we find the good gift of wisdom, which gives light to our walk in this world. That's a good gift. So as the people of God, we believe the word of God can be trusted for truth. It demands what is right and it provides what is good. So the next question we can ask then, well, what should we feel about the word of God? The psalmist is laying all of this out in these verses. He doesn't just say, become an egghead with a big old fat pumpkin head full of knowledge concerning the word of God, where your head's so fat you can't get through the back doors because you know so much about the Bible, but then you have a heart that's stone cold. There's 18 inches from here to here, but it's like there's a million miles between here and here. Some of us know Christians like that. Can parse a theological gnat to the nth degree, but they are an emotionally cold, hard, ruthless, ugly Christian. Because somehow what they know here hasn't translated to here, and the psalmist is helping us with this. So what should we feel about the word of God? God's word is more than just a mere object of intellectual interest. So not only should we study our Bible so that we know what to believe, but we should study our Bible so that we know how to feel. Ooh, feelings. We get a little work, you know, some of us get a little... Is this good and right to have emotions and feelings concerning God and his word? It is. The Psalms are great for this. They're very emotive in a way that brings glory to God. And the psalmist is saying, let me show you how to feel concerning the word. Psalm 119 forces us to consider these things. For the psalmist, he delights in God's word. Just notice the language of how he just flat out delights in the word of God. 
in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Translation, more than my bank account, more than my investments, more than my 401k, more than my inheritance, more than my home, more than my cars, more than my cash, the word of God is more supreme in value. I find delight in your commandments, he says. Verse 47, he says to the Lord God, your law is my delight. The words of scripture are, did you notice this earlier? Sweeter than honey. Food is a necessary form of sustenance. And he says the sustenance of God's word is more sweet to the taste of my mouth than even actual honey. It's the joy of his heart. And he says in verse 129, the word of God is altogether wonderful to him. In short, he's a man who loves God's word. He says, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. When was the last time you were just cruising around your house and you look at your spouse and go, baby, I love the word of God. Most of us don't talk like that. We love everything else, but rarely do we say we have a love for the word of God. But the psalmist challenges us on that. If you did a search for all the times the psalmist declares his love for God's word, you would discover a tenfold declaration of his great love for the commands and testimonies of God. Ten different times he's like, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. And he's just peppering these verses with his absolute love for the word of God. But notice that in contrast, he's also a man who feels deeply when God's word is scorned. If some of you took me up on the challenge to read Psalm 119 before this morning, what you will notice is that there were several times that you have sort of those, ooh, wow, that one had a little bit of a a serrated edge as he was talking about these things. He says, hot indignation seizes him because of the wicked who forsake God's law. Zeal consumes him when his foes forget God's word. And his eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep God's laws. When was the last time you were on your bed at night so burdened for those not listening and obeying the word of God and the God of the word that it led you to weep at their disobedience to the word of God? Your pastor's never done it. He is a man who is passionate about the word of God because he is passionate about the God of the word. When was the last time that your passion for the glory and the fame of God has led you to weep for those who don't know Christ and not walking in obedience to his word? He's a man who delights in the word. We also see that he desires God's word. As a man whose soul is consumed with longing for God's rules at all times, he desires to keep God's word, know God's word, and understand God's word. He has a desire for it. He also see this, that the psalmist depends on God's word. He depends on it. Listen to the language he says in verse 31. I cling to your testimonies. I cling to them. Have you ever been walking through Walmart and you just see like a little toddler out of control? Or you have ever seen um, maybe a little toddler who hasn't seen their daddy? 
got up, daddy got up to work, go to work early and they woke up and like, oh, where's daddy? Then daddy comes home and that little toddler comes in, ah, like lunging through the air, <sighs> clings to the daddy because there's such a love and a delight there. That's the kind of language that's being adopted by the psalmist here. But instead of him talking about clinging to his daddy like a toddler, he's saying, the testimonies of God, I cling to them. I am dependent upon them. You see, there's a lot of things we may want in life, but there are a few things we really need. And with this declaration of dependence upon God's word, the psalmist says these two things are aligning. I'm clinging to the testimonies, the word, the promises, the statutes, the rules of God, because I know these things are what I truly need. What his need is, is for the word and the word of God. Thus he clings. You see, the psalmist grasps what Jesus would eventually confess when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Do you remember this? What did Jesus say in rebuttal to the temptation? One of the temptations from Satan in the wilderness, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knows this kind of dependence upon the word. He clings to it. I need it. It's mine. I must have it. You see, God's word, as we saw last week, as we were wrapping up Ephesians 6, it is a weapon. Remember it? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God's word is the weapon by which we kill self-reliance and are compelled to embrace an absolute Christ-reliance in all things. When you read your Bible, you will begin to be shaped to the place where you go, I can't. I need Jesus. My neighbors need Jesus. My co-workers need Jesus. Self-reliance begins to, to die as you consume the word, and it fans and stokes into flame a, a complete embrace of Christ's reliance. And after all, again, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's the words from God which ultimately point out our desperate need for the word of God incarnate, John chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the psalmist instructs how we should feel about the word of God, but then he says, now here's what you should do with the word of God. Believe, feel, do. So what should I do with the word of God? Well, according to the psalmist, there's just all kinds of spirit-prompted actions that flow from what we believe and feel about God's word. I think I just put a big list up on the screen there. It says we will sing the word of God, we will speak the word of God, We'll study the word of God, store up the word of God. We will obey the word of God. We'll praise God for the word. We'll pray for God to act according to his word. These are all the different actions the psalmist says flows out of what he believes and feels concerning the word of God. Now again, it needs to be said that these actions are no substitute for proper faith in Christ. Right, so what I'm not saying is, listen, the psalmist is just saying, guys, sing and speak and study and store up and obey and praise and pray because this is the way to be right with God. The psalmist is not making that argument. These actions are no substitute for proper faith in God. Listen, no one has ever received eternal life from God merely because they have done these things. 
Jesus said as much when he called the Jews to see in John chapter 5, listen, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So these Jews that Jesus was talking to were going around saying, well, we've got the word and we know the word and we sing it and we speak it and we study it and we pray it. But Jesus says, actually, you do not have his word abiding in you because you do not notice, believe the one whom he has sent. He said, if you study your word, the point of the word is to come to the conclusion there is a Messiah that I need, a Savior that I need, sins that must be atoned for, found in this one who will come and fulfill all these things. But these guys are missing the mark. He goes on, he says, listen, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So the motivation of these people on the outside were singing, speaking, studying, storing, obeying, praising, praying, but their motivation was because this is what will make me right with, G- with, right with God. And Jesus is saying you're missing the point of the scriptures if you think that just doing these things will make you right with the Father, because he follows that up and says, you search the scriptures, your motivation is because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life. Their sort of opening gambit upon death, standing before God, Jesus seems to be saying is this, why should I let you into my heaven, says God the Father, to this kind of Jewish person that Jesus was addressing? And their answer would be, well, we had your word, and we sang it, and we studied it, and we spoke it, and we obeyed it, and we did all these things. And God would say, depart from me, because that's, you, you missed the point of the scriptures. They were to point you to the Savior. Jesus says, it's the scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If your motivation for searching the scriptures is to earn eternal life from God, Jesus says you've missed the point of the word. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has earned eternal life on your behalf through the death and through the resurrection from the grave. And because we have turned from sin and turned to him as our only hope of eternal life, now our new desire is to go and abide in his word Sing his word, speak his word, study his word, store up his word, obey his word, praise him for his word, pray for him to act according to his word. Why? Because Jesus says we are truly his disciples and the new longing of our heart is to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. You see, Jesus makes the argument all over in the gospel of John at least that if you try to earn salvation, it can't be done. But if you go to Christ and Christ alone, looking to him as your only hope of salvation, then there is a life of obedience and faithfulness that will flow from that. And that's what my hope is for us to see. So as we begin this series, may we be men and women who fight for Bible delight, not ashamed of God and his word, not ashamed. Again, as your shepherd, my fear is that the culture is shaming us 
into being ashamed of God's word when it comes to key topics that the culture says, you're on the wrong side of history if you hold to this thing. But here stands the God, the living God, who's infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely good, and says, no, I know what will bring flourishing. I know what will bring thriving. I know what will bring salvation. It is if marriage looks like this, gender looks like this, if it looks like, looks like, looks like. And the culture is going to try to shame you into being ashamed of God's word and God's ways. And my hope is that we would be men and women who fight for Bible delight, not ashamed of God and his word, but striving forward with the word of God as the lamp to our feet, as the light to our path, as we cling to God's word while engaging the culture around us. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Help us, Lord, help us. We need you. Every hour we need you. As we talked last week, we are in a spiritual battle. To be in Christ is to be on the front lines of a battle. The schemes of the enemy, if he can get us to lay down the commands of the, quote, commander-in-chief, our living, our living Savior, then that is a scheme he will embrace. God, help us to stand strong in you to stand in the strength of your might, applying that strength to stand firm in Bible delight because we ultimately delight in you, the God of the Bible. God, help us to not be ashamed. Not ashamed to stand on the word of God. Not ashamed to proclaim the word of God. Not ashamed to call people to repent and believe in the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, do these things for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen.